welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I am simply flummoxed and befuddled. Another week without straight immigration decisions. If history is any indication, I've got some heavy weeks ahead. But for now, rest easy that you are up to date on the light load. Don't worry, I've still got something for you. Good as any time to thank the podcast's wonderful patrons. Derek Upchurch, Brianna Carey, Nanad Milosevic, Justin Sweeney, John Shaw, and Yuna Scott. I cannot thank you enough. Welcome aboard, Caroline Barrow. And additionally, thank you so much for your continued support. Claudia Golden, Dave Burton, Pala Alabunmi, Julie Kagan, Maria Andrade, Michelle M. Marty Rivera, Pablo Rodriguez, Russell Brun, and my very own mother. There are some very, very smart attorneys in those ranks, and I'm honored by your listenership and your support. Before getting to the cases, I want to talk about Journey Business Plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. Ten years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues, or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y-30. Or click on the link in the show notes. First is USA v. Morris, published by the Second Circuit on March 7th, 2023. It's another criminal categorical approach crime of violence case. Gotta do what I gotta do. Always helpful as a crimmigration refresher and to know where we stand. Mr. Morris is a U.S. citizen convicted of using, carrying, and possessing a firearm during an attempted armed robbery of suspected marijuana dealers. 
He was also convicted in that same matter of using, carrying, possessing, and discharging a firearm during an assault in aid of racketeering of an individual whom Mr. Morris shot and killed. Pretty bad stuff. Both counts were charged as violations of the Federal Code 18 U.S.C. Section 924C1A, which requires that a defendant use, carry, or possess a firearm during and in relation to or in furtherance of, as relevant here, a, quote, crime of violence, end quote. That crime of violence definition used in this federal conviction is materially identical to the one used at immigration law. So let's talk about it. Mr. Morris is challenging that his convictions don't have that predicate crime of violence. If they don't, his convictions were improper. Now, the first predicate crime of violence alleged by the prosecution was attempted Hobbs Act robbery. Sound familiar? It should. The Supreme Court just held in United States v. Taylor that attempted Hobbs Act robbery is not a crime of violence, even if completed Hobbs Act robbery might be. Episode 113. Now it's true. Rarely, if ever, do we see a non-citizen convicted of attempted or actual federal Hobbs Act robbery on the podcast. It's just a rare thing to happen. Perhaps a testament to the relative non-criminality of non-citizens? You decide. But more relevantly to the aggravated felony analysis for immigration purposes, and as I mentioned when discussing Taylor itself, it sure does seem to me that decisions like this and decisions like Taylor stand for the proposition that straight attempt convictions, whether Hobbs Act robbery or otherwise, won't likely ever match the aggravated felony crime of violence definition at INA section 101A43F. And that's because an attempt simply does not require, quote, proof that the defendant used, attempted to use, or threatened to use force, end quote. That's what the crime of violence definition requires, and attempts don't have it. So seems to hold Taylor and this Second Circuit decision. To be clear, attempts naturally require some act to take the accused beyond the threshold of mere contemplation and into actual criminal liability. But that action, that action that makes something a criminal attempt, need not be attempted use of force. Even if the completed crime does require the use of force. It's a fine line, perhaps, but it's a dispositive one for the crime of violence analysis. So appears to be saying the Supreme Court and the Second Circuit here in Morris. As Mr. Morris's first conviction was attempted Hobbs Act robbery... His conviction under 18 U.S.C. section 924C1A with that crime as a predicate was vacated by the Second Circuit here, because there is no longer a predicate crime of violence. And to be fair, the Department of Justice did agree to this in this case, as they had to after Taylor. What about Mr. Morris's second conviction, though? In that count, Mr. Morris's section 924C1A conviction was predicated on his having actually discharged a firearm, quote, in furtherance of an assault in aid of racketeering of an individual, namely Jordan Jones, who was believed to have previously assaulted a criminal associate of Mr. Morris in the vicinity of Monticello Avenue and Neerit Avenue, Bronx, New York, end quote. Okay. The underlying technical statute for that, the statutory crime, the assault and furtherance of racketeering thing, is 18 U.S.C. section 1959A3. It's called the, quote, vicar statute, end quote. I can only imagine they're not referring to a Roman Catholic priest. Be a lot cooler if they were, though. To determine whether the vicar statute matches the definition of a crime of violence, the court applies the categorical approach, evaluating, quote, whether the minimum conduct 
falls within the definition of a crime of violence, end quote. Doesn't matter what Mr. Morris did. What matters is whether the least culpable conduct criminalized by the statute requires the violent force that crimes of violence require. Ah, but it's even more tricky. Of course it is. Because the Vicar statute has previously been deemed itself divisible into two separate assault-type crimes, Vicar assault with a deadly weapon, and Vicar assault resulting in serious bodily injury. That means that the courts can apply the modified categorical approach to determine which of the two of these sub-crimes Mr. Morris was actually convicted of. It's the same minimum conduct statutory analysis under the categorical and modified categorical approach, but the statute for review is narrowed. As silly as it sometimes sounds, the court, quote, cannot merely rely on Mr. Morris's own admission that he shot Jordan Jones, who then died, end quote. The court must focus on the statute of conviction, or, at the modified categorical approach stage, the substatute of conviction, and determine if that conviction is a crime of violence. The reviewable conviction documents in this case show that Mr. Morris's conviction was vicar assault with a deadly weapon. The Second Circuit knows this because the indictment expressly charged that he committed the crime by possessing and firing a firearm, namely, a handgun. Not gonna lie, and as bad as that sounds, it seems better for the crime of violence analysis than does vicar assault resulting in serious bodily injury. So I'm not sure why the defense fought the conclusion so hard, but so be it, I'm sure there's a reason. After so determining, the Second Circuit then summarily held that vicar assault with a deadly weapon is itself divisible again, as the assault must be done, quote, in violation of the laws of any state or the United States, end quote. Wish there was a bit more analysis as to why that makes that subsection further divisible rather than indivisible. But in any event, the Second Circuit believed it could, and indeed needed to, determine which secondary law Mr. Morris's assault with a deadly weapon violated when conducting its crime of violence analysis. Returning then to the reviewable conviction documents, namely the plea colloquy. The Second Circuit saw that Mr. Morris, quote, possessed a firearm for the purpose of assaulting Jordan Jones, agreeing to short Jordan Jones to maintain his standing in a group of individuals who had committed crimes together, end quote. To the Second Circuit, that sounded like New York Penal Law Section 120.052 or New York Penal Law Section 120.101. Two different serious New York assault crimes. The Second Circuit wasn't 100% sure, but to the court, both satisfy the crime of violence definition because they necessarily require the use of violent force. Having dug like three layers into the statutes of conviction for Mr. Morris's second crime, the Second Circuit determined then that it was a crime of violence predicate offense, meaning that his second section 1924 C1A conviction stands. Pretty deep there on federal criminal conviction analysis. But also very important for the categorical and modified categorical approach, analyzing these federal and New York statutes, and of course, the immigration crime of violence definition. And of note, before we go. Wild and confusing stuff, the categorical approach. Perhaps that is why this panel urges, in a footnote, that Congress get rid of it. Judge Lohair, in concurrence, however, did not join that footnote. Rather, and although Judge Lawyer sympathizes with his colleagues' concerns, he explains in detail the, quote, wisdom in the current system, end quote. Take note! 
and in explaining his reasoning. Judge Lawyer also notes that, quote, in Connecticut, a court need not establish any factual basis for a guilty plea. And defendants in New York may enter a guilty plea pursuant to a plea bargain without any factual basis existing for the plea, end quote. That is, criminal defendants, it appears, can just plead guilty to crimes, but don't need to admit anything factually. That sounds like some very helpful information to know in immigration court and before the immigration agencies when a Connecticut or New York conviction is at issue. To me. And that is USA v. Morris. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.